welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is James Stern, Associate Professor of Law at William & Mary Law School. We will discuss his article, Intellectual Property and the Myth of Non-Rivalry. So, so James, I just got to say, I mean, I really thought this paper was fantastic and really provocative because you question um, a lot of really fundamental assumptions that are kind of taken for granted among a lot of United States intellectual property law scholars, really about the kind of structural features of the justification of, of intellectual property law. So I was wondering if you could kind of take a step back for a moment and just explain to listeners sort of what those assumptions are, sort of how do the, the, what's kind of the prevailing view of how U.S. IP law scholars think about the structure and justification of, of intellectual property law in relation to property law more generally. Sure. Thanks. And, uh, and thanks also for, uh, for having me. Um, well, the basic idea is this, that um, in the first place, there's something that's very odd about the whole idea of intellectual property, that there's something very different about ideas and information uh, compared to physical things. So with physical things, if you're, if you're sitting in a chair, it's not possible for someone else to be sitting in it at the same time, at least, you know, uh, let's say with the same level of uh, comfort. Whereas with ideas and information, that's not true, that, that two people can use the same, uh, can think the same uh, thoughts at the same time. Two people can sing the same song. People can take the same kind of medical treatment, uh, whatever it is. Uh, the use of, of ideas and information by one person doesn't prevent another person from doing the same thing. And as a result, there's something that's, uh, that's very strange about the very idea of intellectual property because uh, the the use of ideas and information isn't doesn't preclude use by others the way the use of physical goods precludes use by others. So that's that's the basic idea that's in the background. Um, some this is this is often filtered through a kind of um, somewhat sophisticated economic modeling in order, to, but but that's the basic uh, teaching at, at the heart of it. As a result, the, the idea is that uh, we don't need uh, we don't need intellectual property in the ordinary sense that we do property in physical goods because we don't have to decide from an economic standpoint who's the highest valuing user um, and uh, we, we, we don't have to sort of figure out what's the um, what's the most efficient way to allocate this because uses aren't mutually exclusive. And as a result, um, the justification for intellectual property, if there is any in the predominant theory uh, in the United States, is a kind of incentive theory. The only reason we do this, the only reason we grant IP rights is because we think that the benefits of doing so will encourage people to produce IP goods. Uh, it, will, it, will, it provides a kind of an incentive or a, basically a subsidy or a bounty kind of like offering an honorarium or a prize um, in exchange for coming up with the things. It's a kind of motivation theory. But if we weren't concerned about motivation, there'd be no reason to do it. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the ways you talk about it in your paper is like 
the difference between static and dynamic efficiency, right? So put it in sort of economic terms that when we think about scarce goods or physical goods, we have to think about who's going to get them. But when it comes to things that we refer to as intellectual property, because it seems like at least in some kind of in, in, in some sense, they aren't used up by people using them. We're thinking more about how to, how to produce more in the future. Yeah, exactly. The, you know, when you've got a thing that can only be used by one person from a, a kind of loose utilitarian standpoint, what you want to do is make sure that it goes to the person who values it the most, uh, at least uh, irrespective of distributive concerns. If you're trying to make the most out of stuff and avoid waste, you want to see who it's going to benefit the most. With ideas and information, as the, the received theory has it, well, you don't have to do that. You're not put to that choice. And so the efficient distribution of ideas and information is that anyone who wants it gets it because you can share it in the way that, you know, you, you could never do that with, you know, courtside seats at a Lakers game. Uh, the efficient allocation isn't everyone who wants it gets it because the perimeter is fixed and you can only have so many people. Right. So what, what kind of policy lessons are traditionally drawn from that kind of observation? I mean, is there a way of kind of characterizing the policy assumptions or prescriptions that tend to grow out of the idea that we should be only concerned about dynamic or kind of efficiency or future production when it comes to intellectual property? Well, there are a bunch of different things that grow out of it. Um, let me just kind of cite two in particular. One is uh, just a general attitude. It's not a doctrinal teaching, but it affects all doctrines. And that's the attitude that we should be suspicious of intellectual property, that we should view the whole enterprise as, uh, as, as kind of fundamentally suspect. And um, maybe in terms of the, uh, the public-private distinction, clearly on the public side of the line, because what this is is a kind of government grant uh, revocable at will, uh, properly speaking, that just uh, seeks to achieve a certain kind of end. There's no intrinsic philosophical grounding to it. There's um, nothing, uh, nothing to be achieved in terms of IP itself. It's just a means to an end and um, one that comes at considerable costs that we need to be careful at all times, uh, you know, the, uh, are not exceeding the benefits of the enterprise. So that's one part of it that affects, uh, that affects everything. A second piece of it is um, what I would call it, you know, I view this as kind of circular, um, the view that we shouldn't allow uh, in, uh, IP rights holders' uh, interests in suppressing the use of idea and information into the system because ideas and information are non-rivalrous. So uh, if you are um, at the extreme end of things, Howard Hughes uh, or J.D. Salinger, and you want to keep your stuff from the public eye, that's not an appropriate use of, of uh, copyright law because that's not what copyright law is. Therefore, copyright law is exclusively a system of incentives and encouragement it doesn't in any sense recognize the individual creators, uh, any kind of rights that that person might have to control the output of their, uh, of their, of their creative processes. 
Yeah. And, 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 and it really seems to me like, you know, there's this core, core assumption among a lot of intellectual property scholars that, you know, because intellectual property of, you know, traditionally patents and copyrights, but, you know, other things as well, are, aren't used up when people consume them, that we don't have these allocative concerns, you know, they're non-rival, so we don't have to worry about who gets them, and, you know, anyone who wants to ought to be able to consume them, except for providing an incentive. And, and you really, you question that assumption. So maybe you could talk a little bit about why you think that way of looking at knowledge goods is not correct. Well, I, you know, I come at it, I was fortunate to come at these things, not knowing anything about anything. And I, and I, I worry that if I'd known more about both either property law or intellectual property law, I would never have reached the conclusions that I reached, although I stand by them now that I've, I've learned a great deal more. Um, But the basic, uh, my basic argument is this, the incompatibility of two particular ways of using something is representative of a larger phenomenon, but it doesn't exhaust it. And the larger phenomenon is resource conflict. It's not that it's not simply that, uh, you know, the reason we have property rights and stuff is not just because two people can't use the same thing at the same time, but because people have disagreements about the disposition of different goods in the world, um, what's going to be done with them. And when you view and and so, you know, one reason people might have disagreement is because they both want to use the same thing, you know, in the same way and they both can't do it. But that's not the only reason by by Mm. far. Sometimes people just have uh, reasons why they don't want someone else to do something with a particular thing. But it's not that that uh, unless you define what they're themselves doing as not having someone else do it, it's not that they're trying to use it themselves actively. So think of historical preservation or land conservation or or anything like that. Um, situations where where people just don't want something done, and if if that's what's going on, and uh, incompatible use is only a subset um, that gives rise to that problem, well, then that happens all the time with IP. That happens, and not just IP. Let me just let me back up a bit and say that happens all the time with information goods. That is the mm-hmm. that is the law of privacy, which is not even a singular thing. There are many laws of privacy in different contexts, from trade secrets to uh, to revenge porn to you name it. Um, all these different uh, to libel and so on. There are all kinds of um, situations in which people don't want. Uh, information used in particular ways that some that others do want to use them, and if that's right, uh, then the basic problem at the heart of property remains. That's the kind of common sense account of it. There's an economic view too, which mm-hmm. is that the the use of ideas and information can impose uh, external costs on others, including uh, externalities. Uh, that mm. is to say, costs that others don't take into account. Um, so, you know, the, the irony for me is like, um, you know, you have, uh, EFF, the electric, the electronic freedom foundation on the one hand, that's, that's, uh, quite critical of IP, but on the other hand, very positive on privacy rights. And that's fine. You know, that, that, that mm-hmm. may be perfectly, um, conceivable, um, and coherent, but, um, what doesn't work is to say, well, look, 
there, those, those two things don't need some kind of reconciliation. You don't like those two things, uh, don't interact with each other because they, they plainly do. Um, uh, you might well think that, and in fact, you know, people do argue that privacy rights are a kind of IP, um, Mm -hmm. uh, and that, uh, you know, what's at stake here is conflict about information and who gets to control particular, uh, bits of information. So one of the things I thought was really provocative and frankly convincing about your article was the way you really point out that if we're serious about being utilitarian about these kinds of policy choices, then utility can be produced in a lot of different ways. And there's sort of this assumption baked into a lot of IP scholarship that more consumption always increases utility. And I thought a really interesting move that you made was to point out that that's just not empirically true. And that as an empirical matter, right, it's sort of an open question when certain policy choices are going to increase or decrease utility and that there's no sort of obvious, you know, one-way switch sort of answer. Um, well, it, it, and above all, the empirical questions are really hard. I mean, that's a, now admittedly, that's a standard move in legal scholarship um, to say, you know, when it's empirical, you know, who knows what's going on out there, but um, mm. it's standard for a reason. And, um, and I feel kind of compelled to make it. And, and the reason partly is that there are, you know, it's not just, uh, you know, how do we know the sky is blue, but there are lots of areas where we do seem committed to the idea that uh, people should be able to restrict the flow of information. Um, you know, I don't want you reading my emails right now. I mean, actually, mm-hmm. I don't mind, but um, uh, so that's uh, that that's that's a big thing. And so the the question is how you how you go about measuring this because there are these assumptions that's made that are made. Um, it's actually you know I'm. I'm a little bit idiosyncratic in the uh, IP realm as being kind of a Luddite and, uh, and kind of uh, checked out from pop culture. And when I say checked out, I mean skeptical of. So, you know, I look at these things from um, a, a kind of different perspective. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, I, I mean, I, material progress, I absolutely believe in. I'm not, you know, I have, uh, rather more mixed feelings about the, uh, say, the recording industry, which crowds out a lot of things that I like. So um, it kind of, in that sense, it kind of makes it easier to to see uh, to see what's going on. Yeah, yeah. Well, there was one line that really struck me, where your 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 peculiar voice came through in the paper, where you said uh, regarding various innovations that it seems a safe bet that a good number would rather the human race had never come up with such novelties as landmines, cigarettes, cargo shorts, jet skis, genetically modified foods, anabolic steroids, robocallers, state rape, drugs, subwoofers, Ponzi schemes, and crystal meth, which didn't strike me as an entirely arbitrary list of, of things. <laughs> no, I was going for I was going for broad consensus. You know, there are there are lots of things that people uh you know, the, the, uh, the, that are, that are maybe a little bit more, uh, you know, some people like, and some people don't like, but I was going for the strong ones like the, uh, yeah. you know, if, uh, like cargo shorts. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I, I was throwing that in. I, I stopped short of cargo, cargo jorts. 
but um, <laughs> yeah, but, uh, fair, fair but uh, you know, nuclear prol- proliferation. You know, we don't mm-hmm. want uh, we don't want that to spread. Well, you know, the the classic metaphor of Jefferson's you know, taper: he who receives an idea from me receives instruction without lessening mine, as he who lights his taper at mine receives light without darkening me. Well, when that's you know how to make an atom bomb. Actually, I'm not sure the human race is necessarily advanced when that knowledge spreads. Um, now, that's a deep question. That's mm-hmm. a hard question. You know, it might well be that patent law causes the annihilation of the human species. I mean, that's not where I am, but it, it is, you know, it's possible. And by the way, patent law now excludes uh, the patentability of uh, atomic weapons technology, <laughs> Um, mm-hmm. It wants to withdraw its incentive effects from that. But um, there are all kinds of things, you know, maybe maybe we will all be uh, serving our robot overlords in 50 years time that, you know, <laughs> maybe all this innovation will have turned out to be a bad thing. I think as scholars, we have to be, you know, we have to recognize that's at least a conceptual possibility. And by recognizing this conceptual possibility, it uh, suggests a lot of things about the nature of IP law now. So one thing I I really liked as well about the paper was the way you sort of pointed out how the the framework for kind of conventional justifications uh, for intellectual property, sort of the the conventional, you know, economic utilitarian story presents itself as kind of an empirical story and a normatively neutral one, but that ultimately it's it's kind of based in normative assumptions. I was wondering if you could kind of pick that out a little bit and explain why you think that is. Yeah, and and the first thing I'd say is um you know, we should all be wary when what are fundamentally empirical claims can be resolved without leaving our desks or offices or whatever, or in the shower. And that's the nature of the claim about non-rivalry, right? The claim that, um, in a sense, the use of ideas and information is costless. What it, uh, to, to say that this is so, you know, that, uh, not to, uh, not to engage in uh, excessive uh, flattery of my host, but it's kind of ipse dixit um, to say that, uh, <laughs> you know, the cost of the use of ideas and information is zero uh, in all cases as such. Um, we should be suspicious uh, uh, of that, that, uh, you know, that, 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 a, that a seemingly empirical claim uh, reduces itself to that. Um, and kind of more generally, I think there's, um, there's something that's, a miss in the use of the economic terminology. I'm not, um, I didn't, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I don't have a degree or anything like that in economics, but I have, I've gone deeply into the economic literature and I've, I sort of came to the conclusion that a lot of the materials there are uh, abused um, and, and used to support things that they weren't originally meant to do. And, and some of that is true it's, you know, I wanted to say it's just the IP scholars who are doing it. You know, it's just the the law profs that would make mm-hmm. it easier. I fear, unfortunately, there are prominent economists who do the same thing. Um, mm-hmm. But that the public goods concept, there are, you might say, there are at least three different problems that are uh, identified and, uh, and potentially march under the banner of public goods. And they get kind of conflated. 
um, and used in a way to um, to kind of do stuff in a conceptual way that's fundamentally empirical. But at the end of the day, um, the empirical point is just that if what we're saying is that the use by one more person of some information good uh, the really imposes no costs on other people, that's an empirical claim. And mm-hmm. a moment's examination of the world shows that that is not true, that we deeply care about what people do with information goods. And I, there's kind of two other things that I'd add to that that are um, kind of, I don't know, mind-blowing, but like get to the, the kind of uh, deepest part of things. Uh, one of them has to do with just the nature of what things are, that um, you know, the, the way we carve up the world into different things this is kind of a Henry Smith point, maybe, or Henry Smith plus Duncan Kennedy, um, that that's kind of arbitrary. And, you know, if you think about something like gun control regulation, we think of that as the regulatory side of things, but there's, there's no, you know, reason in the nature of reality why we couldn't say, well, that's rights over guns, which is kind of a, a thing, a race as though, you know, the FDA has, you know, the FDA has jurisdiction over, you know, food, drugs and cosmetics or whatever. Um, we could say like that's sort of a, a thing that they control. And if you think about it that way, like the rivalrousness or, you know, potential for conflict uh, with technologies is, is just totally massive. Um, so in that sense, like the way we've chosen to define things um, sort of, you know, uh, builds in or re- reflects our view of, of what is conflict producing uh, and what isn't. I had a second point, but it, uh, it, it eludes me at the moment. <laughs> so, so the, the, you know, reading your paper, uh, what you've said so far were all points that I found like really insightful and also really compelling. I, there, was, there was one thing that kind of was nagging at me a little bit, and I wanted to kind of ask you about it and, and, and see what your thoughts were and, and how you would respond. So, you know, when you, when you make the shift in your paper from talking about like physical scarce property to intellectual property, where, you know, scarcity becomes a different kind of question because it has a certain kind of public good quality to it. You, you point out that, you know, we no longer have to think about allocation and that we should be effectively, at least as I read it, we should be thinking about sort of the utility consequences on individuals and the fact that one person's use might you know, conflict with or reduce the amount of utility that somebody gets from from the same good. And I think that's true. But I wonder, you know, do we think about property policy and government action in relation to property in the same way with respect to physical property? And and if not, is it fair to have like almost like a higher standard? for when we think about how we should do property policy when it comes to knowledge goods. Tell me what you, uh, what do you mean by that? Um, well, it's, it seems it's to me like yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me that when we think about the allocation of scarce goods of physical property, we don't 
we don't typically think about which allocation is going to kind of maximize the enjoyment of consumers. We say, well, we're going to kind of set the bounds of property, and then we're going to more or less rely on cosine allocation for things to find the right distribution. And, you know, we just kind of figured at a certain point, the government doesn't really know enough about how to distribute stuff and that people are better at doing that on their own. And, and and I feel like in the abstract, the point that you're making about intellectual properties is like almost like once you say it, like almost obviously true, right? I mean, like it is just the fact that different uses can cause different amounts of utility from the property. And, and you do point to some circumstances where we worry about those questions in like with respect to physical property, like use the analogy or the example of like, you know, parkland and should it be, you know, should it be developed or not developed? And like, we, we do take that into account, but like that seems more like an exception than a rule. Normally when it comes to physical property, we just kind of distribute it and say, well, it'll shake itself out on the back end. Yeah. Um, so, you know, part of what is going on in this paper is just a, a, a certain beef that I have in property theory, uh, or, or an argument among friends, uh, you might say, uh, people I admire a great deal, like uh, Tom Merrill and Henry Smith, uh, have you know suggest that the reason we have property rights is, in a sense, as a as a means to an end, or the reason we have uh, the right to exclude in property is as a means to an end. That that the reason we have that is just to protect the interest in use. Uh, but it's a kind of rule-like way of doing that. And uh, critically, um, they say, there's no interest in exclusion per se. And that strikes me as wrong, uh, in terms, particularly in terms of everyday intuitions about property. So I teach these cases, and I ask my students, um, I, I don't know if you uh, do this, but um, cases like State versus, uh, not State versus Jack, uh, Jacques versus Steinberg Holmes, sorry, uh, opposite end of the of the uh, spectrum, uh, where there is uh, a property owner and there's, a, there's people putting it, developing, uh, delivering a mobile home, and they traipse across this uh, this couple's farmland. There's no clear damage, but uh, the uh, Wisconsin Supreme Court says this is really bad, and we're going to hit you with a lot of punitives. And my students say that's absolutely right because. Uh, you know, you don't get to do that to other people's land when they don't want you to use it. And I say, yeah, but there was, there's no harm. Uh, it's the middle of winter. There's no, you know, the, the, the compensatory damages here are like zero. So what's wrong with that? This is in a sense, a non-rivalrous use of land. And people say, yeah, but it, it, it's theirs. They, it's, it, it's just, it is what it is. Um, and it's just kind of fundamentally irreducibly yours. And that's what it means for it to be yours. That instinct is strong. Um, and, you know, I don't know what to make of it because I don't think it always controls. But I also don't think it always yields. I think it has uh, it has validity within human societies and, and whatever else. And so, you know, it's just kind of there. And, um, you know, it strikes me as being, you, you talk to strong IP people strong, you know, who, who strongly believe in copyright or patent or whatever. And they say, well, look, it's, it's mine. You don't just get to, you know, take and pay or take and not pay. Um, and, you know, once again, it shows up. So, um, you know, I think there are limits to which the everyday understanding of property, uh, you know, kind of embeds all that. So 
I think a lot of what you were were just saying got at this again this kind of deep observation for me that you know what we're doing when we do intellectual property policy is indeed fundamentally normative and and I do get you know in a sense I mean I found the distinction you drew between you know kind of ideas around privacy and ideas around sort of like the way that people you know value particular uses of physical property even though they would technically be non-rival they still don't want those uses to to get made and i wonder if that doesn't imply that the sort of distinctions we make between sort of um private information and published information sort of in a way that you alluded to the distinction that EFF make makes you know in kind of a broad sense where they're kind of pro privacy but skeptical of of copyright I mean I, I, I mean I wonder if that isn't just sort of a, a reflection of a certain kind of normative perspective on kind of what what property rights and information should look like well, I mean, that's the thing. If I if I say if we look at you know J.D. Salinger squirreled away in New Hampshire trying to keep his stuff from the public or or um, trying to make himself uh, look as flattering as possible or whatever else, that seems somehow antisocial. If uh, on the other hand, you know, you're trying to hack into my email to see what I think about something or other, and and let's say I'm I'm you know it's a it's a matter to some extent of public concern. We think that that's kind of creepy for whatever reason. There's a line between these things and it's, um, it's hard to, um, to put it mildly in the, in the, in the borderline cases. Well, they're, they're really quite borderline. What's the difference, you know, artistic integrity. I don't want to see my, my, uh, you know, something that I created or maybe something that someone else created. Uh, used or subverted uh, in some particular way. I don't want to see a building that I constructed turned into, you know, repurposed as a kind of postmodern thing where you save the facade, but you put up a glass thing behind it or something like that. Um, you know, what makes that legitimate, illegitimate, or somewhere in between? Uh, I think, you know, we don't really have that worked out, but the whole edifice of non-rivalry is predicated on having very easy black and white answers to those questions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and because of that, it really struck me that, you know, part of what I can't shake from the paper is the sense that this sort of like, you know, this sort of economic language we use to talk about why we supposedly do intellectual property policy in one way and why thinking about intellectual property policy in that way is justified might just be the wrong frame. And that, for example, when we think about things like, you know, what copyright policy should look like, you know, maybe the limiting factors, as you seem to kind of suggest in the paper, uh, ought to be more normative and ought to be based in things closer to like what we talk about when we talk about like First Amendment policy, for example, that it's really about, you know, when do we think that allowing people to limit communications is, you know, 
normatively acceptable and when isn't it? Not when is it going to produce kind of better utilitarian outcomes? Yeah, I mean, I think that's just, I think those questions are just, uh, are just very hard. And, um, uh, you know, resolving them is not, is not straightforward. To be, um, the, the kind of, the place I've come down and at the end of the day is, um, you know, because I, I've struggled to figure out why I'm wrong. I'm kind of <laughs> convinced at some level that I am, but nobody has been able to tell me why. Mm. And the the place I end up um, in, in part is with the conclusion, not that ideas and information are non-rivalrous as a phenomenological description in the way that's ordinarily said, let's say a kind of objective, just a truth about the world, the truth about the nature of things that is true uh, uh, quite apart from anything about the legal system, but Mm -hmm. rather that they are non-rivalrous as a matter of stipulation within Mm -hmm. American intellectual property law that, Mm -hmm. um, you know, leave your rivalries at the door before you come in uh, is kind of the approach to things. And that may well work and be right or all kinds of stuff, but it's totally different from the way we talk about these things now, uh, which is Mm -hmm. as a kind of, you know, scientific observation about the world, which I think is just, uh, is just kind of not true. So there might be good reasons to say, look, what we're doing in the copyright space is just, trying to create an incentive for creators. Uh, and, and we're not, you know, if we're going to do moral rights or protect the integrity of art or all these kinds of things, if we're going to do that, that's a separate track. And if we're going to protect rights of privacy, that's a separate track. You can't use copyright for that. Um, you know, that's perfectly plausible as a legal proposition. I mean, it has to be, you know, that's a debate to be had, whether that's what we're going to do, but that's that, you know, I think that's, ultimately kind of what is is really going on rather than um, uh, rather than actually an observation about the way things are although uh, you know obviously if it's the right thing to do as presumably people believe that it has some connection to the way that things are but it is not a direct description of the way that things mm-hmm. are mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so in closing James I mean I wonder if you could reflect a little bit on you know sort of how you think this alternative frame for thinking about the sort of abstract justification for intellectual property rights ought to inflect policy on the ground or rather, you know, in some sense, it almost seems like the paper suggests that, you know, policy on the ground is already reflecting a lot of these ideas and it's actually scholars who are seeing it like through a lens darkly. Yeah, there's a bit of both. And I, I have no normative commitments at the end of this. All I, you know, this is in that sense, uh, I, I hate to say a kind of deconstructive paper in the sense that I'm just tearing down, not building up. Uh, <laughs> but I hope that I'm saying things that are true that people realize and that that, that uh, points people in the right direction. But I, you know, I don't even, I don't take a position on, I don't have a normative theory generally uh, let alone one particular to IP, all I will, all, you know, my reaction here is just to say, that's not true. And the examples I start with, you know, these rock musicians getting angry about the use of their songs, like that actually is, is like historically, like kind of 
the origin of this piece. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I remember thinking about things like that before I knew anything about IP and thinking, what's so controversial? That's what property does all the time. It deals with those kinds of conflicts. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you talked before, you mentioned the idea of scarcity um, and, and, you know, the, the uh, you know, an insufficient supply of material stuff is scarcity in its most elemental form. Um, but, you know, even in, you know, in primitive societies, people sacrificed animals, you know, their most, their prized goats and heifers and things like that uh, 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 to the gods in a way that, you know, suggests scarcity isn't the ultimate thing that drives human motivation. What does is people's conception of, you know, the way things should be. And um, to the extent there's a scarcity problem in social relations, the real scarcity problem is that we don't all want the world to be the same way in Mm. all particulars. That is to say, what really drives things is human conflict. Material uh, scarceness is a major source of human conflict. But even wealthy societies, and maybe especially wealthy societies <laughs> have plenty of opportunities and pl- and all sorts of propensities for conflict. And that's uh, sort of the point that I'm, I'm going on here. And not just conflict in a middling way, you know, not just conflict because they're, because they're difficult, though that is real, but also mm. conflict because, you know, people have, uh, you know, high aspirations as well as uh, aspirations to get through the day. And that turns up in IP law. Mm. Mm, yeah. Well, thanks a lot, James. I mean, this has been a, you know, a really, um, <laughs> really enlightening conversation. And, uh, you know, the paper really blew me away. I got to say, I mean, it really was, uh, I think, a, an important, an important corrective um, observation. And I will definitely be drawing on insights from it in the future. That's, that's very kind of you. It was the most fun paper I ever wrote. So. <laughs> We're here with Alan Arkin, who's one of the stars of the new comedy, Fire Sale. Was it difficult getting into your role? That sounds dirty to me. You, uh, you don't get into a role. You do it. What is the title of the movie again? Fire Sale. Come and see it if you have half a chance. It's, it's unusual for a major Hollywood actor and director to beg like that. Are you embarrassed? No. I have a large percentage of the profits. Fire Sale. It's just plain nuts. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested.